HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of the next episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. The topic? Restaurants and rules. Some rules are based on religion. This makes for an unusual scene in a Manhattan restaurant, a shy 20-year-old dictating the kitchen standards to a humble veteran chef, while other rules promote health and safety. But who are these feared rule keepers with the power to shut a restaurant down? They're not really like food food lovers. Some restaurant rules fall outside the domain of the kitchen. All civil rights issues have basically, uh, at one point or another, revolved around the bathroom. For more, tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's program is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street, a co-working and event space in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Learn more at 100bogart.com. Hello, and welcome to Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio Network. We're a show about food, politics, and identity, and I'm your host, Leah Kurtz. Tonight in the studio with us, we have Isanette Batista. Isanette is a queer black Dominican woman born in Harlem, New York, and raised between the, the Dominican Republic and in Florida. Uh, she graduated from Johnson and Wales University in Providence, Rhode Island, and spent the time after working in hospitality before transitioning to community-based work. She is the creator of Woke Foods, a worker cooperative focused on offering Dominican and other Afro-Caribbean plant-based foods through catering, cooking classes, and workshops. When she's not working on growing woke foods, she's also helping other people start their own worker cooperative businesses at an organization called Green Worker Cooperative. She's currently a student at Farm School NYC, earning a certificate in urban agriculture, and is working towards acquiring land and starting a farm cooperative in her homeland of the Dominican Republic very soon. Isanet, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's a pleasure having you here. 
And um, so I'm really excited to learn more about your work. I've been following you on social media for a while and getting a little like taste of what you do, which made me really want to have you on the show to talk more about your background. So I, so because so much of what you do centers on your own personal background, being Dominican, I am very curious about the food that you actually grew up eating and how that's reflected in your work today. So take us back to baby Isanet. What are some of your first food memories or is there like a dish that, you know, you remember really distinctly from childhood? I think the first dish I remember eating was rice and stewed pigeon peas, like all together. I think because it was soft and so usually now I see babies and kids in my family. They also like our baby food is like rice and beans, like mushed mushed together. And who made that for you? My grandmother. Okay. Okay. Wonderful. And... So did she teach you how to cook or when did you first start learning to cook for yourself? I definitely learned how to cook through my grandmother. I would observe her a lot. And there was, I think when I first started to cook, I was 10. And I remember my first dish being rice in a, in a caldero, in a calderon. And I remember burning it. But <laughs> I tried again. And I was alone in the house. My mother was working. Okay, okay. Were you kind of tasked with preparing food for the uh, for the household much at that age, or you were just, like, totally going rogue experimenting? I was just experimenting, but or I think my mom had given me money, like, order food, and I didn't. I was like, oh, perfect time. I can make my own food. And then after that, once I learned, then I was tasked with making the chicken and making the beans and making the rice. It's a double-edged sword, yeah. right? <laughs> um, and so growing up in, at that age, were you living in Harlem still or were you in Florida? Or I was in, you've bounced around a little bit, right? I was in Florida, but okay. I would spend all my summers in the Dominican Republic. Okay. And would you, would you cook while you were there, like experimenting with the fresh produce or the, like... What, what would you tend to kind of cook as you were starting to, like, get older and have as, more independence in the kitchen? As I got older, I became really interested in desserts. I go to watch a lot of Food Network. Um, like, I, I remember there was a time when I was little that I lived in the Dominican Republic. So when I came back to the U.S., I had to learn English. I remember learning, like, English um, through the Food Network. Oh, interesting. Because I was always really interested in food. And there was, like, a popular like cooking show in the Dominican Republic so then when I came here I didn't have access to that so to watch the Food Network so I was really into um, this show called Sweet Dreams it was all about desserts so I would just make desserts (laughs) and then there was a time I think when I was a teenager maybe like 15, 16 that I I would ask my grandmother if I could help her with certain dishes Um, I think both my grandmothers were both very much like get out of the kitchen and so, like, my mother and my aunt didn't really grow up cooking cooking um, with her. They neither did my dad. And so I think now that they're older, they're a, lot, they're a lot, like, nicer. And we're like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll pass the knowledge down. So I, I, got, I got really lucky and um, sort of learning how to make, um, you know, like, techniques, like adding cold water um, to mash plantains. 
after you boil them that like makes them um, be softer longer mm. so things like those kind of tips they would give me in the kitchen mm. and do you cook now like as an adult do you cook much with your your mother or your grandmother yeah my grandmother's part of my business okay oh yeah ooh, so nice. she'll be cooking with me all next week we have like five catering orders wow what is her role she's she's a cook okay she's a cook sometimes she'll like take lead on like a dish i'll be like you focus on these three dishes and i'll focus on these other ones i mostly probably give her the dishes that she already knows how to do and i'll focus on more like the local local dishes okay wow great um so you are openly queer I, that's a great as a like a queer like vegan like <laughs> rad like business owner in food um, are not queer people vegan i'm just kidding <laughs> right oh that's oh we could be here for hours <laughs> it's like my personal obsession um but i i'm i'm curious how so how that aspect of your identity growing up uh played a role in shaping who you are today and whether that was like a difficult process like coming out or um i don't know yeah yeah i i remember being 12 and my mother asking me if i was gay and I think I told her no. Mm. But because I was like, I don't know, the way she asked me felt like accusatory and I was scared. So I said no. And then I recently came out to her specifically, like about two years ago. Mm-hmm. And she's, she was very like open and accepting. Um, and then so I came out to a few family members, but um, news spreads quickly in my family. So I didn't have to, like, come out to everyone. <laughs> right. And I don't know. I think my family, I've always, they've always called me, like, weird, like, rara in Spanish. And so it was like, oh, it's, like, another thing that Isana is doing. <laughs> First, she's not eating meat. Then she's saving the animals and the people. Now she's gay. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, that's interesting. So... You came out after you became vegan? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Would you say that there was, for you, like, a relationship between the two? <laughs> I'm going there. I'm sorry. Now it's we've opened up the can. <laughs> I will say that there's a... When you start learning about different forms of injustice in the term, and start removing the blinders, you want to live a more authentic life that is aligned with your values. And so I will say that in 2013, there was like a process for me where I was like blinders were being removed in many ways. My consciousness was expanding and growing and things that I was raised to believe and think um, no longer made sense. And so I had to like, I feel like I was being broken open to like just live my most authentic self and things yeah, just I just like oh this is this is who I am. This is like my full self, and I want to be in spaces that are is going to um, accept and like affirm my full my full humanity. Yeah. Do you feel there was a tipping point, like one thing that kind of pushed you in that direction, or was it accumulation over time of different? whether it was media or a book or a film or... I would say definitely my involvement with community organizing. So in like 2014, I joined this collective of Dominican 
um, women and people that were trying to address anti-Haitian sentiment in the Dominican community. And we were also like aligning our work with the Movement for Black Lives Matter. And so like in my organizing, I, I had the opportunity to like meet all these people that were working at different intersections of justice, specifically racial equity. Um, and, and not only racial equity, but healing. So healing mm. justice, so like healing from trauma, um, healing from not being seen in your full humanity by either systems or even your own family. And so yeah, like little by little, um, like, I, like I was saying, like blinds just started to come off. I started to acknowledge my, my own um, problematic mindsets and being like, okay, I get to, I get to show up different. Like once you know better, you can do better. Mm, yeah. And you, so I really enjoy, I just want to shout out to Korsha Wilson's, Korsha <laughs> Wilson's show, A Hungry Society, where you also interviewed and you touched upon that a little bit, the work with the anti-Haitian sentiment. And so if you haven't listened to that, please go listen to that. It's a really um, beautiful interview and they talk about some things that we won't talk about here so you get a really nice more holistic view of uh, Isanet's work and you know her approach to this space but um, I, I really appreciated what you talked about there What and, and I also think that the work of fighting for rights but then also balancing that out with the healing work of actually taking care of each other is mm-hmm. it's so important right what did that look like often the the community organizing that you got into kind of what would that typically be so i so the group that i'm I'm talking about was started by heidi maria lopez and she's a community organizer and she would always say like organizing is how i heal and so there was a lot of things that we often talked about in our group we not only talked about anti-haitian sentiment and anti-blackness within our own family and our community but also what were like sort of the, the traumas that that we grew up with and how does it then like affect how we show up in our interpersonal relationships um she talked a lot about generational trauma and talked um we started exploring the different ways that like our ancestors um, approached um, healing and using food and plants as medicine. And so like really in that group is where I start um, really exploring. I was, I was also going through different issues. Like the more organizing I was doing, the more anxiety I was having. Mm. And I was getting panic attacks. And I was like, what's going on? And so and that, and that group is sort of like that's that's normal that's sort of what happens when you start learning about all these things and things that you thought were normal or not and things that you thought were just how it is are actually intentional and and created by these systems of oppression and so I just feeling overwhelmed and so I approached food and plants and herbs and even um, farming as a way to to calm my anxiety and as a way to um, heal my physical, my physical health and also like my spiritual health. Yeah, I think activism obviously is like, incredibly important, but it isn't always discussed the the shock, first of all, that learning that kind of stuff has on your whole body, but also that kind of work is really emotionally exhausting and to do it full time or even to do it really like, you know, a lot of the time is. Yeah, and so there was, in that moment, I just, I couldn't continue eating the way I was eating. Like, I was, everything was affecting me. Um, 
like I was getting I was getting parasites and I was getting sick and so in that group we started started exploring um you know very queer started exploring herbs and tinctures and crystals witchy stuff <laughs> you know <laughs> witches <laughs> um but other things that were like no this is this is you know beyond jokes this this is exactly what our, our elders were doing before um the commercial like before commercializing production um became like a thing but eating root vegetables like growing your own herbs um, cooking with whatever you were growing in your garden or even your kitchen was very common very normal and so trying to do that as a young person um in this group that was you know very um intergenerational um was really amazing and that's sort of where I was like playing around with the idea for bulk foods because we were often um, exploring how to be aware um, and like awaken yourself to the way that like politics influences our personal life and at the same time in that organizing group I was also interested in learning more about food justice and food sovereignty and the more I learned about that that intersection of racial inequity, I said, wow, people have to also stay woke about their food because they're not out here trying to make sure we're eating wholesome food. Yeah. And so, yeah, so you studied in hospitality. You did some work in hospitality. You Mm -hmm. also, we were discussing earlier, you were doing education, Mm -hmm. which involved food. But, yeah, what was kind of the tipping point that made you want to start Woke Foods as as it is now? Like, it's a, it's a business, and you do a range of... You provide a range of services to help people engage with their food in a more thoughtful, holistic way. Yeah, I, I think I've been lucky. I'm, like... I recently learned the term of multi-hyphenate. Yes. Person, like, yeah, like, the sort of toes and different things. And so, yeah, when I was in... I, I studied um, international hotel and tourism management. And when I first got to college, I had this dream of owning, like, an equal resort in the Dominican Republic. Because anytime my family ever vacationed, we would go to, like, an all-inclusive resort in the Dominican Republic. And I... While well, I was... Well, I was at Johnson & Wales. I've been working in hotels since I was about 15. Okay. And when I was, my part-time jobs were like doing, teaching kids how to work on computers. So I was teaching English. So I was like sort of doing education work on the side. And so I really enjoyed like the idea of helping people in my community get different skills. And when I graduated Johnson & Wells, I worked at the Waldorf Astoria on Park Avenue, and I hated it. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I was like, I, you know, I had this dream. It was going to be so great. I was going to put on my power suit. And I just got there, and I found so many things to be unfair. I was like, why do I have to wear? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, why do I have to wear this suit? Like, they wouldn't let me paint my nails. I had to have, like, a very neutral look to me. And I was like, why are we always like catering to these like rich people that often give us so much attitude about everything? And and I was like, I don't ever see people that look like me that stay at this hotel. And like, so I think that's sort of where like the blinds are start coming off. But I don't make those, I don't m- make connections to those thoughts to like issues of, of justice. But at that time, I'm just like, I don't think this is fair. I don't like it. And so I ended up. I was going to quit, but I ended up getting fired. <laughs> and 
and yeah, and I was my partner at the time was like, this is the perfect time to like go do what you want to do. So I yeah, so I applied for the Peace Corps, and I got in, and then I had like this weird gap between going to the Peace Corps, um, and so I decided there was like an op- opportunity to move to the Dominican Republic and work as a teacher there. And I was like, oh, this would be good experience before I go to the Peace Corps. So I did that. And then I loved working there because I got the opportunity. Like, what subject do you want to teach? And I was like, oh, I want to teach social justice and leadership. Wow. And so they're like, okay, as long as you can teach, as long as you can teach reading through that and like get these kids to like achieve their the reading levels that we're looking for, you can do that. So yeah, so I, I did that and I told Peace Corps, I'm not doing Peace Corps anymore. I'm staying here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I asked them if they could change my site because the the nonprofit I was working at was was a Peace Corps site. But at the time, the Peace Corps was not allowing people to volunteer in a place that they had roots in, which is stupid because they allow it now. But anyway, so that's sort of I do that, and then I come back to the U.S. like a year and a half later, and I do AmeriCorps. Okay. And then once I'm in AmeriCorps, I'm having a really hard time with something that's the time I'm, I'm community organizing. And like I'm seeing all these things that's happening in the school. And I'm like, why is AmeriCorps even paying me $1,000? And I start like, this is not fair. And again, like this like issue of fairness keeps coming up for me. Of course, I'm also a Libra. So fair. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> fairness is important to me. And I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to be able to get paid what I'm worth. I want to be able to work in an environment that's not so rigid and so metrics driven. And to be more effective, I'm sure. Right. A lot of those organizations aren't actually as effective as they claim to be. And 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 what you're doing is far more direct. I mean, certainly the platform is a little smaller, but... Um, it's more directly reaching the people that need it and and being able to pay like yourself and the people who work mm-hmm. for you in an equitable way. Yeah, so that's yeah, so that's, that's essentially how Wolf Foods got started. I started thinking through all all those things that you mentioned and as I'm doing my organizing, I also noticed that my friends are not really nourishing themselves. Like they're going hours and hours like on a protest or organizing or doing like all the work and labor and like really not being able to even get a, like a good job that pays them well enough to afford good food having a really hard time getting food stamps like all these things at the time I was on food stamps too and so I started I was like oh I can like meal plan for people so that's sort of like how Woke Foods get started yeah, and you do such beautiful work creating dishes that are usually very meat heavy. Yeah, or can be, maybe not usually, mm-hmm. but um you do them so wonderfully and they're all vegan, they're all plant-based. Um what are some of the the recipes that were maybe the most challenging to to figure out or maybe the more most exciting? I think the most challenging ones were the ones where, like, um, you, you need to, like, add egg to a batter to, like, mm. bind it. So, like, we have these, like, cornmeal fritters or these um, yuca cassava fritters. Um, we call them arepitas. And, like, so, like, you use an egg to bind them. So, like, having to learn what other binders existed to not, like, um, change the taste or, like, allow it to fry properly. 
But it was also really cool to be like, oh, flaxseed is a natural ingredient that can be used to bind this thing. Or even um, I remember the first time we made um, vegan sancocho. Sancocho is um, in the back in the day was like a pig stew. Mm-hmm. Like made with like the scraps of of the pig, and like other root vegetables, and so learning that like the thickness of a sancocho comes from actually the root vegetables as they're cooking, was like mind blowing. I was like, you actually don't need meat in this. The taste, the taste is in the vegetables. Wow. And do you add mushrooms or do you do anything else to add a meatiness? And you use very much like actual vegetables you're not doing like no you know, you're not throwing beyond burger in there um, <laughs> i'm not because i also my goal with work foods was to make plant-based food accessible yeah and i know that often like meat alternatives not only are they super processed but they can be super expensive exactly and so i was like we just need to eat how like people in the country in our campo eat um, and so, no, I don't add mushrooms, but sometimes depending what's in season, I will like take out, take out or add. So like if I'm making sancocho now, I probably won't add corn because corn is not in season. Um, or if like right now, maybe I'll add um, a different type of like winter squash. So I try to like be seasonal about it. Try to be as seasonal as possible. Yeah. And how has your family responded to that? At first, they they called me ridiculous, <laughs> and over time, I think I also had to create a boundary with my family at one point because they would just call everything weird and ridiculous. I was like, mm-hmm. you know what? I think I'm just gonna do things on my own for now. And so there was like a, a point where like her, my mom's friends were telling her about me, like, oh, I saw your daughter here and there, and I remember I remember the, this time she called me. She's like, oh, mommy. Pero blah, 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 told me about you. I was like, yeah, that's what I've been telling you. <laughs> and Doing hot shit. Right. <laughs> get with it. <laughs> and then there was this um, other instance where I went to go visit my, my grandmother. And I remember a while back, I took like Kale to the house and I had made it. And I remember them one day going to visit her. Um, this is like my maternal grandmother. The grandmother that works with me is my paternal grandmother. Okay. She's like a lot more hip and like understands. And but my maternal grandmother, she's a lot older. And I remember coming home to see her. And she had made food and she had made stewed kale. The same way that we make our stewed chicken, she did that same thing with the kale. She's like, oh, I made you that thing you like. She didn't know what it was, but she made it. And I was like, okay, they're getting it. And yes. that like really brought me a lot of joy. And the other day, the same thing happened. I brought, I actually brought beyond me chicken, chicken things. And um, so I was gonna go take care of her, and I needed to bring some food to make. And she tastes, and she's like, "This is chicken." And I was like, "No, it's not." She's like, "They're lying to you. <laughs> this is chicken." Wow. And she was like, "How much is it? Um, where can I buy it? I would love to buy it." And and so now that they're coming around now it's more like curiosity versus like shutting it down yeah and that is kind of the relationship I felt with those more processed foods is like they can be a really a great gateway drug Mm -hmm. (laughs) or or gateway I guess there's no need to say drug Um, but for maybe someone who maybe wouldn't trust like hey a vegetable can actually do this too Mm -hmm. but um, but yeah but the, the flip side is it can be a little problematic with those products because 
they aren't super accessible. They right. aren't like I was like, I'm sorry, like you, the only supermarket you have is Sea Town. I don't think they're gonna have it in Sea Town. Yeah. But I told her the next time I come, I'll bring you some. Yeah. And and so little things like my my I was visiting my my mom last week. She just she lives in Florida, and she twisted her ankle. So I was like, oh, I'll make you some food with like turmeric and and make you like a remedy for garlic that has like anti-inflammatory. Um, properties and she's like oh okay and she she ate this like kombucha squash that I, I made her with turmeric and rosemary and then I made her like a salad a kale salad with like garlic and other um anti-inflammatory like food and she ate it I mean I don't know if it's gonna make make her feel better instantly but I was like this is just like a sample of what you can do so even when I leave you know, continue to like put turmeric in your food and like our, the regular, because that's that's how squash we use in the Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna continue to make these things. Just add like turmeric and more raw garlic to your food in order to like speed up the healing. Yeah, it's there's so much knowledge and <clears throat> wisdom, like that. I feel like that generation missed a little bit I I feel like like our generation is starting to tap back into that the things that our grandparents and our great grandparents knew because they had to because they didn't have like a strong pharmaceutical system that was going to feed them things or they couldn't afford to go to the doctor or there was one doctor that you know served a whole rural community and our parents kind of grew up in this different environment where that knowledge was kind of poo-pooed like Mm -hmm. that's rural or that's um, not scientific or medically yeah. proven and now there's this beautiful return to that but it's almost sad that in ways like our parents have missed out on some of those things that that now is a hashtag on Instagram right yeah I was um, reading I'm doing I'm trying to I'm writing a cookbook right now and I've been doing a lot of research and in my research I found like in the 1960s um, there was a, a the commercial, the commercial commercialization mm-hmm. of products started in the Dominican Republic, so they're starting like to like import and export different things and starting like packaging products. So it's like really like the rise of like a company like Goya, mm-hmm. and starting like to like package our products and make them frozen and make them like easily accessible, and that coincides with when my family comes to the U.S. So I was like, oh, that's so interesting because like my family relies heavily on like shortcuts. Um, but before the 1960s, things were being made from scratch. Um, so I found that to be like interesting and like makes a lot of sense now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and factoring in you know time efficiency and like you figuring out those like trade-offs of having time to cook something from scratch versus opening up a can and and finding avenues for people to fit their lifestyle. I'm sure that's like a lot of, is that something you acknowledge in your classes that you teach and kind of giving people options based on their lifestyle and based on like their economic constraints? Yeah, so in in my classes, I usually do the food shopping wherever the class is being held at. So like this is what's That's in this so area. wise. Yeah, <laughs> I think I learned that from working. Like there was a point where I was like teaching food justice and, and cooking classes in the Bronx, and I remember like I had to do the food shopping near the school, and it was like sometimes they didn't have the things that I the recipe called for, so I had to do some swapping. Um, so yeah, so I do mention that like if you're from this area, I did this shopping in this place, and this is what was available. 
And then also, yeah, I mean, I do talk a lot about, like, the connection between, like, lack of access to food and lack of, like, time to eat food because I know that when I go back to the Dominican Republic, my aunt and my uncle, they always come home during around 12 o'clock to eat with my cousins and I. And I find that, like, so amazing. And they have, like, time to take a nap and then they go back to work. And that's not something that exists here. So to see like my mom there's and no my aunt. siesta here no there's no siesta here and to so see like my my mom and I my and my aunt work like really odd hours that never really allowed them I never had like had a sit down with my mom and my aunt in the dinner table to like eat together mm. that was only happening like maybe during the holidays mm. um and so that's the reality for a lot of people and, like the the society and like sort of the work working conditions don't allow us to like sit down and eat with each other which is so important i mean you learn that's where you like you learn so much and just sharing in like whatever beautiful dish you've made is it's important to have that time to like sit down and savor it and yeah so often we're just like eating on the street or eating in you know uh yeah in our cars or wherever we're going and yeah it's it's important to create that time we're going to take a quick commercial break and then we'll be right back to discuss more of Isanet's work with Woke Foods. One Hundred Bogart has made much progress over the past year since their grand opening. They are a growing community of professional freelancers, entrepreneurs, and startups. Their dedicated team guarantees you receive a productive and worry-free work environment. 100 Bogart is currently filling up their two-person to 12-person private offices. The spacious pop-up gallery, premier rooftop, and brand new full floor with terrace are available for your next event. Podcast rooms, conference rooms, and meeting spaces are also available for booking. 100 Bogart hosts events like art exhibitions, pop-up stores, product launches, and fashion shows. Heritage Radio Network is a proud member of the 100 Bogart community and often holds events in the building. Visit 100bogart.com to schedule a tour and learn more. Welcome back to Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Leah Kurtz, and we are returning to a conversation with Isanet Batista of Woke Foods. It is a Dominican and Afro-Caribbean food company that teaches cooking classes, workshops, and catering for people who want to learn more about plant-based Dominican and Caribbean foods. And we're just discussing a little bit about kind of returning to foods that are um, truly nourishing and returning to older traditions that maybe we've lost in recent generations and preparing food and kind of getting working outside of capitalism's influence on the products that we turn to, whether it's by necessity or just impulse, just knee-jerk, <laughs> <laughs> what we know. And I... 
I am curious, Isanet, about your, yeah, your thoughts on kind of divesting your diet from animal agriculture. You were speaking earlier about this idea of having these like kind of layers peeled back and kind of the veil, you know, being Mm -hmm. removed of, excuse me, things that you maybe took as normal and then we're no longer, you know, you kind of see behind, behind the curtain. So I'm interested in your thoughts specifically about, yeah, about like eating animals and, um, as it pertains, especially to like the cuisine of your background and kind of where you're cooking from, what that means for you. Yeah. Uh, so, so I was, I was mentioning, I've been doing a lot of research around like the, 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 beginnings of, of food and like culinary traditions in the Dominican Republic. Something I, I recently learned that we actually didn't have like animal farming like wasn't a thing until like later on. Um because at that yeah, so basically animal farming was sort of just um enslaved people were just like um do animal farming to feed people like the elite. And so our our food was like very naturally like plant-based. Even like dairy farms came about later, later, later on. And so like even like um, we make like a lot of like um, candy or like desserts with with milk. Mm-hmm. Um, and that actually like came later on. Initially, our, a lot of our desserts were made with fruit. And so that was interesting to learn. And now, and then like, growing up like in the community that I'm from in the Dominican Republic um, it's called Balvilde de Mao I lived in front of a butcher who um, had a goat farm and so even seeing how they um, process goat is so different to the way that that animals are um, killed and processed here mm-hmm. like there's no respect for these animals My, I mean I understand some people like are like it's not respectful to kill them at Anyway, but I'm like, yeah, but I'm like, if you are going to kill them, there was, like, rituals that, like, um, people back in the day, like, our ancestors would engage in, like, prayers they would do over the animals, like, it's a respect to their ecosystem. That's And that's not happening now, or at least not in, um, in um, the animal farming that's happening today. And so, and I know this, it's, so, it's more about making money, and so... The meat that um, that we're eating is pumped with hormones and antibiotics, and so those things is what we're consuming. And so something I, I notice is even like in the way the way that I look and the way like my 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 mom looks and the way like my cousins look like physically is so different. Like my cousins and my aunts are very like they're curvy but they're thin, and like I see now how like quickly I, I I developed mm. like I started getting breasts and butt like a lot faster than my cousins were and I've I've read like research that like attributes like the hormones in me to like the quicker development of like young girls and um, just wonder like what could have how different would I have like developed would I have taken more of my time had I been raised um, in the Dominican Republic or in a place where I was eating like this meat that's like hormone filled. And so, yeah, it makes me sad that this is not information that people have like access to. Um, and that even the companies that are supposed, like, for example, a company like Purdue, 
like freaking terrible. But yeah. they they also came up with a product. They're like, oh, like hormone free, antibiotic free meat. But they still sell the other meat. So I just don't get it. I don't get that. And then um, I had the opportunity in a few, uh, last summer. Yeah, last summer I got to do this immersion program at um, Soul Fire Farm the Black and Latinx Farmers Immersion Program, and there is like a part of the program where you learn how to process chickens. And you get to participate in the killing of a chicken. It's so funny because all the vegans participated. Really? Yeah, I think we were sort of like, we want to know, like for all the years that we did eat meat, we feel like we we cried the whole process. <laughs> but what I, what I did like about the way they do it is that there's a ritual um, that is like, rooted in the voodoo um, spiritual um, practice mm-hmm. of, of Leah. Her, her people are from, from Haiti, Haiti. And there's like a ritual that they do before the sacrificing of the chickens. And it's a lot of respect, a lot of care. And, and that's not something that like big companies are doing. No, definitely not. People aren't praying over anything. They're probably just praying they don't slip and fall and cut themselves with their dull knife uh, yeah. in a slaughterhouse or in a poultry processing facility. But that's <clears throat> that's really interesting that um, that that was something. As like I I've also I'm I'm vegan and I've also taken part in killing chickens when before like when I was a kid because mm. that's how I grew up. Like we grew chickens and then we cut their heads off um it took forever i was like i don't want to do this again yeah and i mean i that yeah i don't think i could participate in that now as an as an adult who's like chicken doesn't want to die no matter how much you pray over it but that is interesting as far as especially comparing the two and also just having to sit with that and kind of grieve it and mourn it as like you can't really stop it but like you're engaging in this you know this workshop or this program but kind of like navigating that as as a vegan yeah. like that's i mean they give us the option like, okay either you can do this or you don't or you, or you but don't most do. people but everyone did no not everyone did not everyone did okay no so yeah i mean it, it definitely opened my eyes a lot and I, and I think also in a conversation we engaged in which is a lot more like spiritual than anything as sort of the pain that an animal goes through to to die and so then how then is that how are we then consuming that pain which is like mm-hmm. very meta but something that comes up a lot and mm-hmm. is valid as a point to talk about yeah definitely um it kind of segues nicely into my next question which is i i'm curious how you kind of navigate the the world of being really interested in agriculture and getting really like invested in agrarianism in land justice in you know this like skill share that you've done um and you've learned from soul fire farm and then also working in activism within the the kind of vegan space but specifically around like decolonization um with other vegans of color like i know you're at the um decolonized conference with mm-hmm. uh organized by Raza for liberation and there's so many great groups right now i feel like doing distinct work but within a similar sphere 
as it pertains to focusing on empowering individuals and less of the shrill kind of animal rights, act, like very white veganism kind of activism and mm -hmm. really being a little more critical across systems of oppression, not just one. For there are many. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I, how do you kind of nav navigate those worlds, which are sometimes oppositional? Yeah, that's so true. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, first and then all, you throw queer shit on top of it. And it's like... <laughs> I know. Um, well, I'm very grateful to know all these people. I'm, I'm very grateful that the community I'm, I'm a part of is sort of like addressing different issues in different ways and with different platforms. And like everyone has like a specific lane and a sort of like stick, like sort of staying in that lane or maybe like crossing lanes. But for the most part, they have like a vision for the world that's very similar and then and then sort of like our missions are different of how we approach that vision and that purpose and so something that that is really nice is that when i'm in a space like when i was at the, the decolonize on conference that was organized by um kr from la raza was that i was able to like highlight and bring up the the, the importance of when you are plant-based or vegan, understanding where your food is coming from, mm -hmm. that it's not just animals that are being like hurt and harmed in the process, but also humans, specifically like immigrants that are coming from Latin America, the Caribbean and Southeast Asia and other places. And that's not something that often um, people that are trying to live a healthy lifestyle, even like nutritionists, like think about. <laughs> and for me, that's very important and why I appreciate so much the work of Soul Fire Farm, because it's really like their work is really about addressing racism in the food system. And then when I am in um, the area of like agriculture, I get to then sort of bring up the issues around um, the importance of like a plant-based more more access of like, plant-based foods in our community that it can't just stay in your farm mm -hmm. that it needs to come to like communities that are urban and so I'm really also appreciative of like so many urban gardens and farms and I think another thing that happens in like urban gardens and farms is really the 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 recipes like they'll get like a lot of funding into cooking classes like the recipes are not culturally relevant mm. so like bringing in that piece too. Um, so yeah, so I'm grateful that I get to be in like both spaces. I also get to be in like a space of like activism for like people of color and queer people. And I get to like bring both these worlds to them because that's not often um, there. And sometimes I get to be in all three spaces at once. So it all You depends. are sitting in the most beautiful Venn diagram. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which... Brings me to, I just have a couple questions left and we, yeah, we won't stay too long, but I was blown away by the speech that you gave uh, just a couple weeks ago mm -hmm. at um, a city hall mm -hmm. forum um, talking about kind of, I mean, similar vein, mm -hmm. access to resources mm -hmm. uh, for people of color and and speaking from your own background, yeah, as a queer woman of color who owns her own business and mm -hmm. does not have the same access to uh, space, land, tax cuts as, say, a conglomerate like Amazon. Mm -hmm. And really speaking from the heart, it's a powerful 
speech that you can find on Isanet's Instagram or on Woke Foods, and I recommend everyone go watch the clip that she uploaded. But yeah, I'm curious, kind of everything, like what you shared, what prompted you to share, and I think that it's important for people to realize how they can take part in activism, especially within their own communities, and be part of the change that at least challenges those structures, regardless of what the outcome is, speaking up and trying to weaken and trying to do what you can is so incredibly important and sometimes feels overwhelming, like there's nothing I can do. But even that was such a a brave and a strong action. And so, yeah, can you talk a little bit about if, you know, as you're comfortable with like what, what led you to do that, and some of the things that you shared specifically pertaining to your work in food and sitting within, like I said, like these different spheres. And as you were saying, these, you know, corresponding, all those seemingly disparate realms of queerness and um, within the food space and as a person of color. Yeah, I was I was very emotional when I made that speech and I'm still and it, I'm, it still makes me emotional now because I remember when I first started Woke Foods, it was like two, three months where I didn't have a place to live and I was like couch surfing and, you know, sort of, I I started Woke Foods on my food stamps. Like, and I always, I don't have shame in saying that. Um, And so it makes me really sad to know that there are so many people like me in my community that are starting Um, these businesses that are called social enterprises, quote unquote, um, but are, they're not just like businesses to support our livelihoods, but we're really saying, you know, to help our community, we actually don't need to all be nonprofits. We could be for profit so that we can pay ourselves what we're worth and not have to depend on grant money to do that. Mm -hmm. And so I know that I've, I've had so many different issues with like, getting housing or yeah I mean some people a lot of I do get a lot of questions about oh well what foods are maybe a restaurant I'm like I don't know if I could ever afford to own a restaurant like yeah like property is really expensive um and not just like really expensive I just can't afford it (laughs) um and then I know so many other people um I know like Tanya Fields from Libertad Urban Farm in the Bronx and then she has this other project, Black Feminist Project, that has also dealt with issues of like um, secure housing for her and her family. I know a lot of other like chef activists that are doing really important work and don't know if they can make rent every month because our work is very niche and not everyone wants to hire a chef with like thoughts <laughs> such such like deep deep thoughts about the ways to change our food system and our community supports us like i'm so 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 grateful for our community they always like send us work but it's not always enough mm-hmm. and so it makes me sad because of there was a time where i like like was like knocking on doors for the blasio like in in my community like canvassing for him in spanish and so to see all the ways that he continuously sells us out. Like, it's a deep sadness. I don't believe in, in, in politics anymore, but there was a time where I did. Mm-hmm. And I did that work. And he promised more. A lot of these, like, 
while we're a democratic state, like a lot of these city and state officials like promise a lot of things, but they don't ever. <sighs> I don't know. I just think I'm like, just ask us what we need, and we'll tell you. We've been telling what we need. Just like listen to us, and and to think about all the money that Amazon is getting, and like how impactful all that money could be for like my other fellow small business entrepreneurs, what that could mean for like secure housing, what that could mean for like some startup funds. Because no one wants to invest in like companies that are about eradicating systems. <laughs> There's like really no like startup funding for that or investments. And so like, yeah, I, I, wish, I wish there was more that, that we could do. And I think right now the only thing we can do is speak on it like I'm doing now and I hope that somewhere someone listens that has some power to like really shift things yeah I think the the general disappointment in like liberalism mm -hmm. is something that's the Amazon deal is such a good example of and do you feel like it's pushed you further left in ways that you didn't anticipate or in, into different pockets of the political sphere? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely made, made me pay more attention. Um, but though it's hard, even if you're paying attention, these things come left field. Like, these, this was, like, this wasn't made public until, like, papers were signed. Right, it's all after the fact. Yeah, so even if you are paying attention, like... It, it like happened um, and behind closed doors, but yeah, I think I am. I am trying to become more involved with like policy work. I've been I've been really enjoying like the the work that Just Food is doing around yes. like informing us how what's happening with the farm bill or like when um, this past summer the, the the green markets changed like the the company they were using to process um, the EBT, and so they were changing the way they process payments and the company they were gonna switch to where they are switching to like it hasn't stopped um this wasn't able to it's not able to process payments such as ebt so then that cuts the program the um the they're like these coupons you get so like every five dollars you spend using food stamps you get two dollars mm. so that program was going to be cut because of this and i i i I worked in like farmers markets for like two seasons and um, and yeah, a lot of the people that came to buy food were on food stamps, including myself. And so paying attention to things like that, like sort of staying on top of it. And so I'm, I'm grateful for Just Food because like they sort of send information out that like it's not complicated language. It's like language that is like easily accessible. Yeah, which is so important. And in terms of being pushed left, I don't know. I think I've always, my thoughts have always been, I don't want to call them radical. I just feel they're very simple. My solutions are very simple. It's not like big shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's like just give people like being able to, for them to have access to land. We can like grow our own food. We don't, we don't need like these like millions of dollars. You mean you don't need a helipad? Yeah, I don't need a helipad. I don't need your, your food technology. Um, yeah, we just really need access to things and for it to just be given and for us not to have to prove that we deserve it. Yeah. 
so your work is so impressive and I'm like I'm I'm so excited for what's coming next. I'm also curious about what is coming next. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you first, what are you listening to? To like when when you get in these dark places or when when yeah, it's it when the political sphere from left to right is incredibly uh disappointing. What what kind of brings you up? So that, and then also, like, I want to know what Woke Foods has on the horizon so that for anyone listening to this, they can um, maybe come to one of your classes or come to an event. Uh, sure. I like to listen, I do listen to a lot of, like, Spanish-speaking music. I listen to a lot of salsas and merengues and bachatas. It's also this um, Dominican, Puerto Rican artist. Her name is Rita Indiana. She's, like, queer and tall like me. Ooh. And I really like her. She, um, she like, does uh, music in Spanish, but a lot of her, like, the beat is, like... Afro-Caribbean. What's the first name? I'll remember Indiana because I'm from Indiana. (laughs) Rita. Okay. How do you spell it? (laughs) R-I-T-A. Oh, Rita. Okay. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I am a terrible white person. (laughs) I should have said Rita. (laughs) Yeah, sorry. (laughs) I mean, it sounded fancy. (laughs) Um, Yeah, anyone else? Um, Hmm... Who else? I really like... Um, I like to listen sometimes to, like, soothing music. So when I get out the shower, I like to listen to, like, Nora Jones. Yeah. Yeah, it's really nice and gets me, like, in a nice, positive mood before I go out in the world. <laughs> yes, you need it. God, don't you need it. So, and, yeah, to kind of close out what... Yeah, what's up on the horizon for Woke Foods? Um, uh, so much. Um... We're really just trying to create, like, systems that are effective. So, like, try, it's real hard writing recipes down. Oh, that's terrible. Oh, my God. And so, like, as we bring new cooks, like, I have to train them. And I was like, oh, shit, I have to write this recipe for this amount of people. And that's so hard. I wish I could hire someone from, like, America's Test Kitchen to come do this for me. <laughs> yeah, because you can't write every... <laughs> Because you can't make everything to taste as much as you want to. <laughs> I, yeah, it's hard. Um, so, so on on that on that note, um, we've been like like I said, my grandmother works with me and like on um, two other like um, my my grandmother's an immigrant. We've hired like two other immigrant cooks and we hired like two women that recently came out of Rikers. Um, so I think the direction is sort of to keep hiring. Um, women of color that are having um, barriers to accessing jobs. And so um, that looks like immigrant and formerly incarcerated women of color. So that's been, I know it sounds like a big thing, but it's actually not that big of a thing. There's just people that want to cook and want to make money. So it's actually very simple. (laughs) And then we are, like I said, I'm writing a cookbook proposal. Congratulations. That's incredible. Thanks. Um, I don't want to talk about it yet because I know I have to send it out to publishers and agents to see if it gets picked up. And then um, in the spring, we're going to start the filming of our um, TV show. I know. I'm so excited. It's like a talk show, cooking show. We're going to 
we're going to get to interview different people doing food justice work. And it's called Stay Woke About Your Food. Okay. We have something to look forward to. Several yeah. things. Yeah. So you get like more tangible woke food stuff. Like you don't. So like sometimes we're like, how can we how can we get more? Or how can we access you? And usually it's just like really the cooking classes that are like the most public thing. Because usually workshops were being hired by like other people. Right. Um, yeah. Like I'm going to be in Amherst in February, Amherst College in, in February to do like a, a workshop. And then also the college is doing like a food week and they're going to put some woke foods menu items on their dining hall i'm so excited hey way to like yeah <laughs> get out there seep into people's subconscious and, yeah. and palate yeah so that's exciting and then in march i'll be in cuba doing a plant-based workshop for woke food to have another cuban chef out there wow that's i mean your work is exciting and i'm incredible I'm like I'm I'm excited I can't speak that's why yeah. <laughs> oh and this is exclusive I don't know when this is coming out and I don't know when this interview is coming out but I got interviewed by Forbes last week and we're I'm doing the shoot on Friday for it and so it's like the, um, they're like highlighting people like change makers in different industries wow congratulations so, that's... Uh, so those are like sort of what you can expect that's coming up and we'll we'll put it up on the instagram yeah so you can follow woke foods on twitter and instagram at just woke foods you can also follow isanet's personal page as well on both twitter and instagram Mm -hmm. to keep um yeah to keep kind of abreast of the the events and also just her own work sharing it in whatever mediums and with on in whichever countries. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Leah. Thank you so much for coming on the show. uh, And thank you for listening. Um, This has been another episode of Food Without Borders. Catch us next week at 6 p.m. on Wednesday. You can find this episode on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher, and on heritageradionetwork.org. Good night. listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.